Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio. I'm Louis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. We'll be taking a look at the California School Dashboard that just came out this week. And we'll take you to an unusual classroom in Fresno that's doing some really interesting work around math in preschool. But first, let's turn our attention to our main topic of the week. As many of you know, California is in the middle of a major reform of its public school accountability system. It abandoned its old academic performance index, which assigned schools and district a number based almost entirely on student test scores. In its place, it established a multi-measure system that takes into account numerous other indicators in addition to test scores like chronic absenteeism, suspension rates, and how prepared students are for college and the workplace. You know, a key part of that new system is the California School Dashboard, and it shows how well schools and districts are doing. Each is given a color rating, one of five colors, red, orange, yellow, green, or blue. And just to clarify, red is like the worst, and blue is the best. It is. And all subgroups of students, and that's important, get a color too. This week, the state issued its latest and third release of the California School Dashboard. It shows how well schools and districts and the entire state are doing. And it's pretty complex. And I know, John, you spent a lot of time with it. What was your basic takeaway from this year's results? Well, you know, the data underlying the dashboard is complex, but the colors tell a pretty clear and simple story. You look at a color and you can really compare and see how other student groups are doing it. It's, it's as clear a message as you can get. And the dashboard itself serves a couple purposes. One is to inform parents in the community about how their school or district is doing. The other is to tell the county and the state which districts need improvement based on the colors in the dashboard. And so you need the most improvement, right? That need the most improvement, exactly. And so, you know, those two purposes sometimes are at cross purposes, making it a little bit more complex perhaps than it would appear that it needs to be. So last year, uh, the state identified several hundred districts for support from the counties and I guess also the California Collaborative for Educational Excellence. It's another state agency. And they call that differentiated support. So how does that look on this year's dashboard? There's an encouraging sign that 179 of the districts of the 380 plus that were identified last year no longer need it. Their student groups improved just enough to get out of that so-called differentiated status. They had fewer of those red ratings and that combination of ratings at the low end of the scale. Exactly. Now, it could have gone from red to orange, which is the next level up. But, you know, there is progress, and I think it's encouraging to see because no one knew whether the county assistance would work. And, John, I should remind you that when this system was getting set up, uh, Mike Kirst, who was president of the State Board of Education, he cautioned that just because a school wasn't targeted for this support didn't mean that everybody was doing great. Oh, absolutely. And also one year isn't going to turn things around radically. It takes time, as we know. To drill down a bit, we have on the line the Los Angeles County Superintendent of Schools, Deborah Eduardo. She has quite a job on her hands, and arguably what happens in L.A. County affects all of us in California and perhaps even the entire nation. The county encompasses 80 school districts, including, of course, L.A. Unified, the state's largest district. Together, all these districts serve about 2 million students. That's more students than in most countries. Welcome, Deborah Duardo. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Superintendent Duardo, I just wanted to get your thoughts on how useful you are finding the dashboard. Well, we find it to be incredibly helpful. One of the things that I really appreciate about the dashboard 
is that we are now disaggregating data and looking at all students by subgroups. So for example, in the past, we could have an overachieving, high achieving district that has not been identified that they're not doing very well for certain subgroups. So that could be their foster youth, their homeless youth, their EL students. So it's really important to us to be able to make sure that we're looking at all students and ensuring that they're all making the gains that we want to see. Well, what stood out to you, Deborah, from the latest release of a dashboard? Anything uh, that jumped out at you as significant? Yes. Um, one of the things that stood out to me is that we have seen significant improvements in English language arts and math. I think statewide, 179 districts that were in differentiated assistance came out of differentiated assistance because they made improvement with those student subgroups. We have less students in the area of um, students with disabilities or special education that are being identified for differentiated assistance. So we've seen gains there. And superintendent, just to clarify, by differentiated assistance, it's districts that are being differentiated or targeted for additional support from the state based on certain performance measures, right? Exactly. So we go in and we do a root cause analysis. We meet with their team. We look at their data. We look at the interventions that they've put into place. We look at best practices and we support them in order to make improvements. So just to give you an example on this new dashboard, we have 16 of the 35 districts that were identified for differentiated assistance came out because they made significant improvements. I just do have to ask you whether districts on the whole are open to this kind of assistance. I know there's often a tense relationship between the people giving the oversight. Certainly that's been the case between the state and the districts. Uh, how, how is that playing out between you and the district? You know, it's really changed. First year, I think districts were a little weary. They were used to the old system where they where it was a more punitive approach. Uh, with this new approach of coming in as a partner, of really talking about continuous improvement, they love the support. In fact, some of the districts that I called to congratulate because they were coming out of differentiated assistance status said, can we still get the support? You know, we've formed these really strong relationships and they really see us as a support and appreciate the help. Which area has been the most difficult to see change of those various indicators, you know, test scores, chronic absenteeism, suspension rates, career and college readiness? Which one seems to be the most difficult to bring some kind of substantive change to? I think the, the biggest challenge has been around chronic absenteeism, graduation, and, and, and you know, probably the, the academics is just moving those things forward. So, you know, whenever we see chronic absenteeism, that tells us there are underlying issues that are preventing children from being successful. Absenteeism is one of the first indicators that let you know that a child is having a problem connecting to school, whether it's because of something at school or something in their community or in their home that's taking place. So we're really looking deeper and identifying some of the barriers that are preventing children from being successful and coming to school regularly. Well, one of the factors or one of the indicators that districts are measured on is how they serve homeless children, right? A huge problem in, in many, many districts in uh, Los Angeles County and uh, that would obviously contribute to the chronic absenteeism rate, right? 
Absolutely. Um, in L.A. County, we have over 70,000 students that have been identified as homeless. And we know that that's an undercount because typically people don't like to come and tell you or don't even identify as homeless if they're doubled up or living with a family member. So um, we have a strong partnership with the Department of Children and Family Services, the Department of Mental Health, the Department of Public Health. We have a very strong partnership where we're leveraging resources and bringing as many supports as we can directly to our schools. We've been talking with Deborah Eduardo, who is the County Superintendent of Schools in Los Angeles County. Look forward to staying in touch with you to see how things evolve in the coming years. Thank you so much. We really appreciate the time. John, as you know, lots of people are still adjusting to the dashboard, and there are many different views about its usefulness. We have on the line Morgan Polakoff. He's a professor at the Rossier School of Education at the University of Southern California. He's written extensively about the dashboard for the Getting Down to Facts Research Project, and he thinks that some significant improvements are necessary to make the dashboard a really useful tool. Thanks for joining us today, Professor Polakoff. Sure, I'm happy to be here. So I just wanted to get your quick reaction to the latest results on the California School Dashboard. It does show that uh, the number of districts is, at least in terms of the criterion set up for which districts should get support from the state, the numbers have actually gone down a bit. It suggests that uh, some schools are doing a little better than last year. Any, any thoughts on that? Well, I think that that is one of the most relevant questions when these new statewide data come out. I would certainly focus much more on school and district level results than I would focus on statewide dashboard averages. And the fact that there is some smaller number of districts that seems to be in need of support could be seen as a good thing, could be seen as demonstrating some progress. So I'd like to see more than probably just one year's changes to see if that trend persists over time. And just to clarify, why do you think that statewide data is not as useful as school-level and district-level results? The question is basically, what do you think the dashboard is intended to be used for? I think the dashboard is intended to be used for basically two things. One, for parents to help them evaluate schools and make decisions about where to send their kids to school. And two, for the state to target interventions and support. And so I'm much more interested in how individual schools and districts are doing than I am what the statewide average is. Now, this school dashboard is a really a central piece of California's relatively new school accountability system, really kind of setting California apart from many states. Now, I gather you have concerns about how useful the dashboard actually is. Could you just uh, share what your concerns are? One is, as I said before, I think one of the main uses of the dashboard is to help people make decisions about where to send kids to school. And the dashboard, as you note in your article on the EdSource website, does not allow for that kind of comparison. I personally think that that really limits the utility of the tool for parents making decisions. It's also worth noting, not a lot of people are actually using the dashboard. I mean, when we looked at this last year on, on our annual poll of California voters, it was, you know, something like a third of voters had heard of and were using the dashboard. We're going to poll on that same question again. But if it's not being used at any reasonable amount, then again, it's not likely to have its intended effects, at least sort of from that parent demand side. 
So one of your concerns, it doesn't allow you to compare districts and schools. And just quickly on that, I think the state was trying to discourage that because, um, you know, comparing a school that's in a more affluent area where we just know students are, are going to, based on their family incomes, are going to, on average, do better. And so comparing those schools wasn't such a great idea. I mean, I hear that concern, but it also is completely detached from the reality of how parents evaluate schools. I mean, there are all kinds of websites out there, the most notable of which is Great Schools. And Great Schools has this problem. There was actually a report about it just this week about how Great Schools basically penalizes schools serving low income and students of color. Well, if the state thinks that that's a problem, then instead of saying we're not going to allow you to compare, which, again, doesn't at all match with what parents actually want to do, the state could say we're going to allow you to compare, but we're going to give you information that addresses that issue. So, for instance, the state used to have this similar schools metric. Well, the state could do something like that. And and instead of saying, how does this school compare to all schools, it could allow parents to say, how does this school compare to other schools that serve kids who look like the kids in this school? So, again, I just think that the state went too far in, in basically taking information out of the hands of parents and private providers are just going to step in and do, frankly, an even worse job uh, that sort of runs right into the face of the state's intended reform efforts. Okay, so that's one concern. Any other major concerns? Yeah, I think one other sort of low-hanging fruit concern is that the state still is one of only two states in the U.S. not to have a, a growth model in their accountability system. The other one is Kansas. And they have instead this thing called change, which basically takes the school's average from last year and compares it to the school's average from this year. And there's a ton of research suggesting that this kind of change metric is just not good. It doesn't accurately tell you how good a job the school is doing at educating kids. And we know a lot about growth models, and there's really no reason at all that I can come up with for why the state is still choosing not to use a growth model Again, given it's just us in Kansas. Okay, but just to clarify, by change model, we are showing how schools are doing this year compared to last year, but it's comparing different groups of students. We're comparing this year's third graders to last year's third graders, for example. By growth, you want to be looking at how those same students, the third graders, are doing how they did last year and then looking at how they are doing this year in fourth grade. Is that? Is that... Absolutely, yeah. And I wrote a brief for... PACE, Policy Analysis for California Education, that lays out this argument. Imagine a school, a 6, 7, 8 school, where the kids come in at the 20th percentile. In the second year, in seventh grade, they're in the 50th percentile. And in the third year, in eighth grade, they're in the 80th percentile. That's a school that is making unbelievable growth for kids. Because if you compare the kids to themselves, they're going up dramatically. But if the entering class of kids was always the same, if they were always coming in at the 20th percentile, they would show up as being right at the middle on the change metric. And that's a totally inaccurate representation of what's actually going on in that school. So a school might actually be doing better than it appears on the dashboard. Right, or vice versa. So just just quickly then, is it possible to incorporate growth into the dashboard? Or is that going to be just a huge task or require sort of redoing the whole thing? I mean, I don't think it would require redoing the whole thing. I know that there are efforts at the state level to work on this issue. I just don't know 
how far along they are or necessarily why it's taking so long. Again, given that many states have had growth models for five, seven, nine years. Do you think it's worth sticking with this dashboard and improving it along the lines you've suggested or do we have to start all over again? I would stick with the dashboard. I mean, I definitely think that there are challenges with it and shortcomings, but the state has a reform model in mind. And I think that the state should be allowed to implement that for a number of years and do serious evaluations of how it's working and then see how it's going and and make adjustments, you know, a few years down the road rather than stopping right now. Okay, well, terrific. I really appreciate getting your thoughts. We've been talking with Morgan Polikoff. He's a professor of education at the Rossier School of Education at the University of Southern California. Thanks for talking with us today. Thank you very much. John, you know, one issue that the state board that implemented this dashboard was quite insistent on, they didn't really want districts to compare themselves to other districts or schools to compare themselves to other schools for some, I think, pretty compelling reasons. Well, maybe so, but people will compare and they want to compare. They want to compare what schools down the street look like, compare with those. It's sometimes useful. The board's view was comparisons encourage bad behavior. And so they didn't want to do it, and they haven't. But at EdSource, we have a version of the dashboard with all the data, and you can make those comparisons if you want to. So check it out. Well, let's end this podcast uh, not on a number, but uh, on where it all begins, at least uh, when it comes to the education system, and that's in preschool. There's some really interesting work being done in bringing math into preschool as part of the Early Math Project. Our reporter, Zadie Stavely, brings us a sound snapshot from a family math night at a family development center in Fresno. Okay, you want to listen to my pattern? Okay, I'm going to click it, okay? Can you do that? Good job! We clicked it two times. That's a pattern. Now we're going to click it. I'm going to click it some more, okay? Ready? Listen. Can you try that? All right, good job. You tapped it three times. Can you make a pattern? I can copy your pattern. We really wanted to make sure that it was clear that math is everywhere, that math is fun. It's not something that's just contained in a textbook or a classroom. And it's not something that any one type of person can do or not do. I'm Matilda Soria, the Early Care and Education Director of the Office of Fresno County Superintendent of Schools. I'm working so hard. <gasps> did it float or sink? Good job, John. What did it do? Float or sink? Float. And you said you were adding more weight. You did. There's still space. It's not quite full yet. Is there more red balls? Well, I don't know. I don't see very many left. Man, we found Back most there. of the red ones. Up there. Up there. My name is Vanessa Lozano. My son is Cesar Lozano. He is two and he'll be three in January. I thought math was just strictly like, let's count, let's identify numbers, and but it's so much more than that. And my husband was quick to point out that a lot of what the presenters were talking about, we do at home. So we were teaching math without even knowing it. Patterns, predictabilities, like all that we do. There are more, look. Oh, I see another one hiding. I see one. Zadie's article about the Early Math Project is now up on our website, 
And that wraps it up for this week's podcast. Thanks to our sponsors, the S.D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Our producer is Kobe MacDonald. Our music is from Nate Schwartz Jazz Orchestra and Ed Source's own Justin Allen. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. 